This morning, um, as we continue along through the Beatitudes, we come to the challenging topic um, of internal versus external religion, which is surely the crux of a lot of the interpretations regarding the Beatitudes, and is one of those one of those more like fundamental and important issues that all Christians have to have to uh, face and encounter. This idea of internal matters of the heart versus external practices of religion is obviously something that Jesus elaborated on you know, repeatedly throughout the Gospels. You see this topic um, hit and is drawn out conflicts with the Pharisees quite often because it is Jesus himself right, who demands not only right actions from his disciples, but also right motives, right motivations, right intentions. Jesus says crazy things and takes interpretations of the law to extreme ends, it seems like. He says things and said, like, not only does the law require you not to murder, but also you can't hate another in your heart, because uh, that is equal to murder. He says things like, don't, not only should you not commit adultery, but you cannot lust in your heart. This is our Savior who lays down these uh, incredibly high demands and who brings up this very issue and this topic that we're going to address today. And here, we have in the midst of these blessed promises, these very, uh, these very wonderful blessings pronounced over the lives of his people, we have this blessing pronounced over what for many of us is probably the most challenging part of walking and living as a Christian, uh, of having integrity and being the same on the inside um, as we are through our actions on the outside. There is much to say over this topic, and so I'm not going to belabor the point much in terms of uh, talking about why we should care about this, but rather I'm just going to dive right in and cover this beatitude under three headings this morning once again, beginning with our first point, uh, hearts made pure. Point number one, hearts made pure. In order to really dive in, it's important for us to, to take a quick snapshot of what the biblical account of, of the heart is. We should probably take a moment to describe what, what the heart is according to the Bible and then discuss a little bit about what it means for that heart to be pure. And so let's just begin this morning by talking plain and simple. I mean, what is the heart according to the scriptures? What, um, what is the heart? How do, we, how do we conceive of the heart? Well, Thankfully, since we are Westerners, we, we do operate more or less with, uh, with the biblical understanding of what, what the Bible here is talking about concerning the heart. Because for us and for the Bible, the, um, the heart is, is the notion of the self at its perhaps deepest and most fundamental level. Um, talking about the heart is sort of this comprehensive way of describing the individual, or sorry, like, uh, of uh, describing the innermost part of our lives, our, our internal life. Um, the heart is very comprehensive and, and covers a lot of ground. Who we really are, what we desire, what we love, the Bible has a lot to say about those things and uses the heart to describe um, all the facets of, of life on the inside. Because on the one hand, the Bible talks about the heart being related to the will, um, what, the way in which we act. We're told over and over, and we'll discuss some of these in, in, a, in a moment, 
we hear over and over about how the heart is, um, you know, makes these evil plans. Or even if they're not plans, the, the heart makes plans. The heart has intentions. Um, the heart decides what to do in many ways. But the heart is not just related to the will, of course. The heart is also related to the intellect and to, and to the mind. There's not a real clean separation and distinction in the Bible sometimes. The heart can be used as like the locus of thought, um, of our thoughts. It is the seat of our inner dialogue many times throughout the Bible. So we, when, when the Bible tells its stories, sometimes we hear um, how people pray to God, but they pray and they think in their heart. Um, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the teachers there, Koheleth, he repeatedly talks about, uh, he repeatedly says, I said in my heart, um, I spoke these words in my heart. I thought these things in my heart. When Mary, um, when she received the pronouncement regarding the birth of the Christ Jesus, she pondered the pronouncement of the angels, we are told, in her heart. So the heart is related to things like the will. The heart is related to things like the mind. Uh, but the heart is also, if we use modern terms, is, is where all of the emotions for individuals lie as well. It's where the emotions operate. The heart can feel different things. The heart can be glad in the Bible. The heart can be anxious. The heart can also be satisfied. It's very modern to speak of emotions. I think an older way of talking about, uh, about such things is to, is to use the idea of, of affections or perhaps passions. And in that older sense, the heart is, is kind of the center of, of the affections as well. The heart is described as like a compass um, that can be pointed in a certain orientation. It can be oriented towards the right direction. And it's drawn to, the heart is drawn to those things that we, that we love. Whatever the heart perceives as the ultimate good, that is where your love is directed and, that's the, and, that, is, and that tends to be the direction that your life goes. And finally, the last thing to say is that the heart is, is that internal sphere of life where oftentimes in the Bible divinity or the spiritual is encountered. Um, in the Confessions uh, of St. Augustine, he opens up in that opening paragraph by talking about how people, you know, how God has made man for himself, but our heart is restless until it rests in, in him. The heart is what must be drawn towards God, and the heart is meant to rest in God. The heart is where we come in contact with, um, with divinity. And in that sense, we're also told throughout the scriptures that, that the heart has a way of seeing things. There is a spiritual vision that is associated and tied to, tied to the heart. In places like Psalm 27, for example, it says in verse 8, the psalmist says, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, O Lord, do I seek. And you see some of those things in operation. We have the heart speaking. We have the heart expressing this desire. But it's through the heart that an individual can see God and can seek him out and try to uh, cast their vision upon God. The heart is where we perceive and see God. And in order to see him with clarity, according to the scripture, uh, the heart must be clear and it has to be pure. So as this beatitude opens up, 
There's this blessing pronounced on those who have a heart that is able to see God with clarity because the heart is, is, of, is of course, pure. And I think what it means to be pure, for the heart to be pure, is very simple, but it's also one of those ideas in, in the Bible that is loaded with all of these connotations. I mean, there's certain words, certain concepts, certain ideas in the Bible that when you hear them, when they, when they crop up, you have to pay attention. Uh, and whenever the Bible talks about something having to be pure or something having, having to be clean, well, as, as good students of the Bible, one of the first things we should think about is, an, is this idea of like ceremonial cleanliness, like cleanliness. Um, to be pure and to be clean in the Bible is loaded with all of this, all, you know, mosaic, um, worship, washing and cleanliness, the rituals of being clean and unclean, being holy, unholy, all those wonderful things that we get from the Old Covenant. That shouldn't be lost on us, even when we think about talking, talking about the heart. The foundation of purity, to even, under, to even begin to crack the code of what it means to have a pure heart, begins with the idea of, of ceremonial cleanliness. And it is that comparison that Jesus draws out, not just here, but over and over throughout other parts of his ministry. Because what he will go on to say, and what we're going to be focusing on this morning, is the idea that true religion doesn't just require outward washings as important as outward external things can be. Um, But Jesus here and in other places talks about the inner purity and cleanliness that is required of us uh, to perceive God. And both of them really operate according to the same principle. St. Jerome says that the pure is known by purity of heart, for the temple of God cannot be impure, See, the same sort of reasons why things like the temple or the tabernacle or the priesthood had to be clean and pure so that God can, uh, can dwell there and, God can be, and that man can have fellowship with God. Those same sorts of pictures that we see in the externals also operate here when it comes to the internals and to the heart. In order for Christ to dwell and in order for us to have fellowship with him, well, he, he only takes up space that is pure and that is clean. And there is, and as much as we sometimes try to divide you know, external cleanliness from internal cleanliness, um, that's not the way the Bible operates most of the time. Often those two things are woven together. Like we read Psalm 24 this morning, and it asks this question, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? So who's going to go up to the temple? And who's going to stand in the holy place? Well, what's the answer? It's those that have clean hands, and a pure heart, not driving a wedge between, between the two. So once again, the idea here, very simply for us this morning, is that there's a blessing pronounced for the pure in heart, meaning that those who are earnest in the heart, those who have an inner integrity, um, whose internal life matches the outward appearance, those who have a godliness in the inner life and, and a heart that matches Um, all the appearances of godliness that we may possess. Blessings for those who don't live a life of contradictions. Those who, like we're told in the psalm as well, Psalm 24, those who do not lift up their soul to what is false. Those who don't swear deceitfully. If that is you, 
Uh, and if that is your situation, well, Christ is very emphatic and stark warnings for such people. When he's in one of his conflicts with the Pharisees, he says in Matthew 23, well, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Why? Well, because they clean the outside of the cup. But on the inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, he goes on, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside might also be clean. And that's what this blessing is all about. Blessed, blessed are those who clean the inside or who have a clean inside, um, who prioritize the cleaning of the inside so that they may also clean the outside as well. But this critique of the Pharisees, uh, this whole idea that, that's brought up here and that we are challenged with this morning, well, this is just that. It is a challenge. Uh, it's a struggle. And the nature of that struggle is where we're going to spend most of our time here this morning. So the second thing that I want us to see here from this passage is point number two, uh, finding a pure heart. Finding a pure heart. You know, this beatitude is one of those things that can hit us and it can be one that is perhaps maybe more condemning or more burdensome than the others that we might have heard. I mean, when I hear things like, blessed are the merciful, it's very easy to you know, consider maybe the ways in which I have been merciful and to be stirred up to more mercy because in the grand scheme of things, that can be, that can be quite a bit easier than getting a handle on my internal life. You know, hearing these things, if you live a life of hypocrisy, this can be very condemning. If you've become good at putting on a show for others, there's not much hope and blessing that, that is pronounced here uh, for you. If you've made your life all about externals, this can be wearisome. It's hard because this beatitude doesn't sound like great news. And that's for good reason. Because if there's one thing that the Bible uh, tells us is, is, is deceptively wicked and that is nearly impossible to get a handle on, and that is, is you know, um, deceitful from its conception, it's the human heart. And so that's what makes this so complicated, and why living with a pure heart is so tough, because the heart is wicked and incredibly difficult to tame. I mean, we're all, well, we're, you may not be, but, but this church is, is, you know, formerly, like, we're Calvinists, we believe in total depravity, and so... One of the things that we are taught and instructed in from the earliest uh, of, our, of our time here is that, yes, the heart is indeed wicked. So Jeremiah can say things like, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is deceitfully sick. Who can understand it? Um, the wicked heart of men is at work from, from beginning to end of, of the pages of Scripture. I mean, from the earliest days in, in Genesis, the, it's the wickedness of man's heart that prompted things like the flood and God's judgment. When God looked out, it says uh, in, in Genesis 6, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time or continually. You know, what's crazy about that story is even after the flood in Genesis 8, when God looks out at, at, at what's left, he still says, well, the intentions of man's heart is, is evil from his youth. Um, this is tough. Uh, it's, it's a tough one because we know the wickedness of man's heart. And, and even for Christians, 
you know, we have a healthy amount of skepticism regarding, regarding the human heart. There's a strong impulse at work in the life of, of the church, hopefully, because you know, to, to purify and to safeguard the heart, because we know of its deceptions. And that's, and that's clear the longer that you lead a Christian life. I mean, thanks be to God that many of us who have walked with the Lord for some time, he has been gracious to tame maybe some of our worst qualities and to, and to like put, help us to, to put to death some of our most egregious patterns and sins. Thank God. I mean, he has, for many of us, um, you know, removed sinful impulses or, 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 or sinful actions to, you know, to do, to, to do small things. For many of us, he's helped us with a lot of our outward, external um, holiness, curbing our speech, right? He, he puts down those, you know, our, our impulses maybe to violence or to, or to anger. He has hopefully, for many of us, prevented us from, from you know, petty crimes, small, you know, small amount of, of, of thieving, not, you know, not, not hitting people need, needlessly. All those are great. But for the mature in Christ, those who walk with him for some time, one of the crazy things that happens is that you, as you walk with the Lord more and more, you grow when you perceive yourself to be a greater sinner. And it's not those outward sins that you feel the weight of. It's, only, it's those inward sins uh, that are magnified. And it's that struggle of the heart that is what we, we contend with and what we battle with day to day. Most of the spiritual welfare, sorry, warfare that we engage in is conducted regarding the sins uh, of a wicked heart and our apparent lack of purity internally. And, this is, and the task of training our hearts unto purity like this uh, beatitude would seem to require, that, that's what can be so challenging. It's challenging for all of us, whether you're adults and it's something that you try to safeguard your children uh, against. I mean, Christians are at war with maintaining a pure heart and having a right perspective of the heart as well. And that's one of the more challenging things, particularly as a, as a parent. Uh, I mean, I think for, for, for Christian parents, we should be rightfully wary of a culture of ours that, um, that doesn't engage in proper spiritual warfare in the heart or that tends to leave the heart unchecked and, un, and unchallenged. Because there are certainly a lot of contemporary ideas regarding the heart and how we should just be given over to it and follow it without question that can be really different to fight against. I mean, what the world has to say about the heart um, will lead any concerned parent to, you know, do things like cancel a Disney Plus subscription. I don't know. Do, just do things because the messaging can be quite devastating. Because what does the world say about, about the heart? You know, on the one hand, there's, a, there's, there's overlap, similarity to our perspective, because, yes, it, it does concern the inner life uh, uh, of a person. But yet, the non-Christian understanding of the heart rarely questions whether or not the desires of a heart are good um, or bad. Uh, never considers that the loves of the heart might be out of control. Never challenges the idea that that you are to be, you know, that you should train your heart, let alone, you know, just follow its lead. You know, too often we face the, the, the idea that we'll treat the heart as though it's autonomous, that the loves of the heart 
must be followed without question. And that wherever that heart leads, the rest of your entire being should follow. The idea that the heart shouldn't be governed and that it's, it's not influenced is not um, the Christian perspective. I mean, those ideas are just aren't true. I mean, the heart is always shaped and molded and influenced by other uh, forces. You are not helplessly held hostage to your heart because there are always these things, these other, these other factors that are directing and guiding the heart, exerting pressure on the heart. And the Bible is very clear of this because the Bible tells us that, that there is one thing that exerts more pressure than just about anything on, on heart, and that is sin, inflaming this older idea of, of passions and fallen desires. But in the Christian perspective, the heart is something to, that is good, but it's also something to be trained that if external forces outside of your control can put pressure on the heart, there are other forces that you do have control over that influence and direct it as well and direct it in the way of purity. You are not left to the whims of your heart. I'd even go so far as there there are um, ways in which you can shape the very things that you love. But ultimately, what our desire should be is to train and to direct our heart in the way of purity for the sake of this task laid out here of seeing God. Purity of heart. Ensuring that the inner motivations of your life match your outward actions is a major concern for all Christians. But how you go about doing that, um, I mean... That's where the challenge is. How do you? How do you purify your heart? How do you pursue a, pursue a pure heart and secure this blessing that's pronounced here and the promises associated with it of beholding God's glory? How do we go about that? Well, Christians have had a lot of ideas, um, a lot of bad ideas uh, through <laughs> In different times. I mean, some have suggested that the way to go about it would be like the Pharisees, like take the tried and true um, method of just, of just adding so many requirements and, 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 and piling upon barrier after barrier to keep you so far away from transgressing the law that um, that'll keep you pure. That if you set up rules upon rules, um, extra rules, that it's going to keep you so far from the edge of the cliff that you will not run any risk of being tipped over. Frankly, that's, that's also the fundamentalist way of going about it, uh, of adding, you know, whether it be from tradition or, or just from your own, uh, your own fancy, adding rules upon rules to ensure purity. There's others who maybe will tell you, okay, the way to stay pure is you need to retreat from the world. You need to get as far away from anything that is impure as, uh, as possible. This is, this, is where, this is where Luther uh, critiques, oh, he, he critiques this idea the most, right? He, he, um, he, he's very adamant against this approach to maintaining a pure heart. Um, in his day, he was taking aim at, at monks. He was a former monk, so this is something that he, that, I, I don't know, he was kind of bent out of shape about. He says, take, for example, um, a monk who thinks 
if he lives after his strict rule, in obedience, in poverty, unmarried, cut off from the world, that he is in every respect pure. A pure heart, he says, uh, well, a pure heart, they fancy, means that a man runs off from the community into a corner, a monastery or the wilderness, and does not think upon the world, nor concern himself about worldly affairs and business, but amuses himself with nothing but heavenly thoughts. They have, by this fanciful teaching, not only befooled and dangerously misled themselves and other people, but they have committed the murderous fault of holding as unclean the doing of things and the holding of positions in society that are unavoidable in the world and indeed are by God himself appointed. So that's probably not a great way um, to go about it either. Um, But there's also maybe... Another way that we might get obsessed with, too, and this is probably more, more familiar to people from a Reformed tradition, and that is like to strip away all externals and to make like deep, deep introspection your priority, to make your reflection and contemplation about, about your own inner life, you know, like to navel gaze as the way in which you find purity. Um, there's a tendency amongst some Christians, to go more of like the Jonathan Edwards route, right? To really intently focus on, on your religious affections and engage in what we call morbid introspection. But to spend all your time uh, considering your own purity. Well, no matter what approach you take, and you may, you may, weave, like you may lean one way, like more one way of those than the others, um, no matter what way you take, there's, there is this acknowledgement that something must be done because we want the blessings here that are promised to those who are pure in heart. We want it. Uh, we love Christ and we desire to see him with purity. And Jesus seems to tell us that we need to take extreme measures. We have to do things like pluck out an eye, cut off a hand. We, like, we need to pursue a holiness and yet getting there can be quite difficult. How do we maintain the premise that we need to have a pure heart, that there's a blessing for a pure heart, and yet we feel so sinful. How do we, how do we resolve this issue? Well, the third and final thing I want us to see today is point number three, uh, the granting of pure hearts and pure sight. The granting of pure hearts and, and pure sight. We want to see God. And not just see God by our eyes. I mean, God is invisible. We know that from our catechism and from the scriptures. So we're not just talking seeing him with our bodily eyes. No, we want to behold his glory, his majesty. We want to perceive him by our hearts um, as the wonderful, magnificent, the king of glory, as the psalm tells us. We want to usher him in to our lives and into our very presence. We want to see him. But the Bible ties this hope of seeing him in eternal life with purity. You just, can't, you just can't shake it. So Hebrews 12 tells us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But how do we get there? How do we become pure when we don't feel pure? Well, I think the first thing that we are told to do as, as Christians... Uh, first thing we're told to do is to ensure um, that the possession of a clean heart isn't something 
that um, we, don't, we don't begin, we don't start uh, with it as an idea that we can achieve on our own. That acquiring a pure heart has to be, in a sense, granted unto you and accounted unto you before you can even take any steps to try and act accordingly. Under the terms of the new covenant, it's very clear, a pure heart is a divine work of God that has to be granted to you uh, by God through uh, the power of his spirit. The possessing a pure heart is a sheer act of God's grace. And as the kingdom has been granted unto God's people, so too is the purity of heart that is fitting for his kingdom. And that at first, at the most basic level, a pure heart is not a matter of striving after something. No, it is, um, it is something that has been promised to you and delivered to you um, through, the, through the work of Jesus Christ. See, there's this promise concerning the heart from the Old Covenant. When you think about the Old Covenant, you think about your Old Testament and all the ways in which Israel failed to live up to their end of the bargain, part of the promise of the New Testament was a granting of this very thing, a clean and a pure heart. So when you hear a passage like Ezekiel 36, when the prophet is, is prophesying about this new covenant, he says this. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes, to be careful to obey my rules. Well, and thanks be to God that through his work on the cross, Jesus accomplishes and has delivered this very thing foretold by the prophets. Because it is this pure heart that Christ grants to us um, through the shedding of his blood. So much so that the author of Hebrews can tell us um, in Hebrews 10 that we have to have confidence when we enter into the holy places because we enter in through the blood of Christ by a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since that we, are, that we have this great priest, he tells us to draw near with a true, with a pure heart of full assurance, those very hearts being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed as pure water. In a sense, the... The weird thinking here is that to, well, to begin in your journey towards pursuing a pure heart is to stop and to recognize that you've been granted a pure heart uh, in Christ. That God already knows your impurities, and yet, it, even in the face of those impurities, He has still, uh, through the blood of His Son, washed you and cleansed you, sprinkled you clean, just like we, uh, we see through the waters of baptism, this, this, this washing that makes clean. And we know that, in a sense, both the blessing of having a pure heart and the promise of seeing God, that in many ways, if you're here this morning, it's already in operation and it's already true uh, in a very real sense. If you are here and you profess faith in Christ and you love God and you've seen his glory and his mercy enough to repent of your sins and to cry out for forgiveness and to trust him, well, in that sense, you've already started to see God. You beholded his, his glory and his power. And the king of glory has already been ushered in. And you are already at this time.
time praising him. You trust him. and You apprehend him through the eyes of faith. You've already started to receive the blessings of this kingdom if you even acknowledge that these things are true. Your eyes, or the eyes of your heart have been opened. You have been enlightened already. Paul says in Ephesians that you, that you already possess these, the eyes of your heart. They have been enlightened so that you may know what is the hope which he has called you to. That this has already happened, that you receive this in part now. But of course, you know, we live in this tension in, in this age of knowing uh, that our hearts aren't as pure as we feel like they should be at times. We know that our sight of God isn't as clear and as pure as we would like it to be. Well, but, well the New Testament fully acknowledges that. The apostle, like the Apostle Paul says that, that for now, it's like we see through a mirror dimly. Yeah, yeah, yes, right now we, we do see a bit of a fuzzy picture. We're not, we can't perceive God purely because we're not pure according to sight. But by our faith, we have already started to become pure. And as we see him through a mirror dimly, there is great hope that one day we will see him as face to face, as clear as standing face to face. Now I know in part, he says, but even then I shall know, even as I am fully known. And so I think the task for life um, today is to continue to endure with two things held in tension. On the one hand, desiring earnestly more purity, that that desire is never going to go away, uh, and we're never going to settle for where we're at. And at the same time, also not beating ourselves up um, in this life. Because if you have an idea that you're going to achieve perfection on this side of the resurrection, it's, it's not going to work out for you that way. Instead, rather than um, busying ourselves and worrying ourselves with our general lack of purity, to believe first and foremost what God has declared about us, that we are pure, in his sight, and therefore just live and fulfill our obligations to those that we love, to just the general areas that we find ourselves through things like our vocations. Paul tells us in Titus, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. It's not fitting for us to retreat into a life of isolation so that we can find some purity when God has declared us pure and our, our neighbors, um, our church, those around us need, uh, they need us and they need our service. Luther, when talking about people who want to retreat, he says that, um, but that is a pure heart that, um, that is ever on the lookout for God's word. The one who takes, um, takes this in place of its own thoughts. For only that is pure before God, yes, purity itself, through whom everything that comes in contact with the word and belongs uh, to God is to be called pure. So with, the common, uh, so with the common rough mechanic, a cobbler or a smith, the one who sits at home, though he be personally unclean and full of soot, or he smells badly on account of being blackened and soiled and thinks... Uh, my God has made me a man and given me a house, a wife and a child, and ordered me to love them and with my labor to nourish them. 
Now, he is making a heart matter of all things with God. And although outwardly he stinks, inwardly he is perfectly fragrant before God. That's all you're committed and, and obligated to do is to live before the face of God, um, treasuring his word and um, fulfilling your vocations, loving him and your neighbors. And you shall be blessed. And the way in which you see God will only uh, increase and be enhanced uh, until the day when you meet him um, as though as though face to face. May we as a people just sit back and relax. <laughs> Not be so consumed with the navel gazing um, that we rec- or that we overlook the fact that we have a chance here this morning and every day that we, that we wake up to behold his glory, uh, to see him and to perceive him uh, through hearts that have been made clean by the blood of Christ. Let us rejoice in that fact. Uh, let us relish in that fact. And together as a people, encourage one another um, as we gain clearer and clearer sight. Let's pray.